Welcome to the Sanctum. Here we study the mysteries of Dungeon Crawl Classics and Appendix N. With your keepers of mysteries, Jim Brinkman, Mark Bruner, Bob Brinkman. Enter the Sanctum Socorro and be inspired. the Sanctum Secorum podcast, where we plumb the depths of Appendix N. Tonight, we're going to stray a bit from the prescribed DCC formula and dive into the creation of the term Appendix N itself. We're here with Ernie Gygax to talk about how a genre of literature was selected and named and discuss a couple of progressive creations resulting from those little yellow-spined books. I'm Jen. With me tonight are Bob... Hello, folks. We have Mark. Hi. And we have Ernie. Hello again. Yay! Welcome, Ernie. Thank you for joining Thank you us. so much, yes. It's a pleasure. It's only KC's problem today. That means I'll probably have to play less. <laughs> Uh-oh. Oh, More the time on Sanctum means less squeaky duck flying. <laughs> so, we mainly brought you on our show to talk about Appendix N and and the glory that it is, and we have your dad to thank for the term itself. So can you tell us a little about your family's love of reading and what got him to put all of these into one tidy little collection? These are just the novels that dad had on the wall in his den in between typing and whatever else and when he would take breaks and lie on his little couch and read. So my earliest knowledge of any sort of reading whatever else was coming in to try to bother my dad and get him to put a book down. (laughs) I think I was in fifth grade before I became interested in reading. Otherwise, I used to fake book reports and things. And Dad was reading the first book of uh, Conan, the Ace Edition. Mm. And he was reading that, and he described it to me, and I said, that sounds pretty good. So when he put the book down, I picked it up and started reading. And then anytime he didn't have it, I was reading. And by the time he was in the middle of the third book, I had read all of them. Lo and behold, I suddenly stopped faking book reports and was turning an extra credit in school constantly for fantasy and science fiction and historical novels like Mad. My sisters, I don't believe, well, they certainly didn't use my dad's library. So your whole house wasn't full of books, just his library? Just his little den. Um, And the collection grew with time, and then finally, by the time he married Gail and had a home on Madison Street, then he had a huge collection in the basement, which I could then go loot <laughs> when I'd make villi- you know visits, Very but uh, cool. the appendix N and what it's just we used to go to the Lake Geneva Regional News. I think was the uh, name of the the store. That's where my dad met uh, Jim Ward. 
Oh, okay. And that's where he would get his books. I don't know if it was weekly or monthly. Whenever the new releases were put out, so I guess it might have been monthly in those days, he would hit the bookstore hard and have to probably fight with my mom for the amount of money would be necessary for him to pick up five or six books at a time. Wait. Yeah, I know that feeling well. <laughs> In the early days, there wasn't much money. Dad was a shoe repairman at the time period of D&D and all that. So he was earning approximately $100 a week for a family of, I don't know what we had then. I think we just were up to five. So, you know, so, and mom, and so seven people in the family. <laughs> yeah, if you're making that a week, 75 cents to a dollar for a paperback is still quite a luxury. Um, I'm not sure if they were 35 cents then or what. <laughs> <laughs> Late 70s, I, I think they were probably 50 to 75, maybe. Yeah, this is a 1973 Hyrule's Journey, and it's a buck and a quarter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nice. And now I've got a question. Appendix N itself is kind of a small list. I mean, there's some great people on it. There's some great people that didn't make the cut. What other sci-fi fantasy authors did he and you both like that didn't make the Appendix N cut? Um, well, I can tell you more people that he, which he tried and dissed. Oh, well, that's even better. Dish, dish, dish. <laughs> you know, uh, John Norman, which was the whole Gore series. Oh, yes. Uh, lots of people in those days were super loving the John Norman. But the only book that I enjoyed and Dad actually said was okay was Raiders of Gore. I think that was book three. But lots of the gamers then were into all the things that women want to be dominated, the special slave knots and that kind of crap. So <laughs> so that didn't make the cut. What else? Uh, the Carl Wagner or Wagner uh, with his, was it Kane? There was a barbarian guy with a big axe. Oh, yeah. I know exactly who you're talking about. Yeah. That, that was just quick reading. It was kind of the, the Conan ripoff that just wasn't really good. And even though we were became friends with Gardner Fox, that was, again, kind of a more of a ripoff, a little bit of Fritz Leiber, too. Uh, Gardner Fox did Kothar, I think, and Kyrick. Kothar, Barbarian Swordsman. We've covered that book, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Kyrick. And those were all fun, but those didn't get reread over and over again. Of course, what did get read heavily were the Paul Anderson books, in particular, the one with the paladin, so that's Three Hearts and Three Lions, and The High Crusade. Ah, been wanting to read that one. The High Crusade's a lot of fun. That is a lot of fun. That's that's one of my favorite books of his. Real simple premise. He also really, really enjoyed Philip Jose Farmer. Oh, yeah. And there was some sort of, uh, did he do some docs? E.E. Doc Smith stuff. I thought he might have continued on, Farmer. And there was some Doc Savage, I thought, too, maybe. And his Riverworld series was fantastic. Hey, Ernie, one question kind of following up to Bob's is, in addition to the novels and stories that he was reading, what other influences, like such as like movies or histories, would kind of influence his gaming aesthetic? Well, he loved uh, Zulu, which is about 1960. He loved um, Spartacus. Of course. Mm, good stuff. Oh, jeez. When you start trying to talk about the different movies and things, we never missed anything that was Napoleonic or whatever, but it was so rare to find much on TV at that time. So War and Peace even got watched. <laughs> well, that was awfully long for a kid. I had <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and at the very early Gen Cons... Like Horticulture Hall, didn't somebody screen a couple of those, like Zulu and a couple others? Jeff Perrin did tons of movies, and it was always 
each year he would bring a different reel or two of movies. So we had, of course, Zulu. And then he also brought Tora, Tora, Tora. And he brought Culloden, which was a real BBC small budget, but a fun movie about Bonnie Prince Charlie, in particular, the last battle where he, he got garnished and finished off. And that's how we ended up with Drambui. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Some of the other... Jeff just had these incredible movies. He had um, the Misfit Battalion, or the Pino Battalion, and the Misfit Brigade, I think. There were two different titles for the same movie. He had that at some point. Though that might have been later. That might have even been just VHS. So I'm getting... Because he... The Jeff Perrin thing continued on throughout my life, and he ended up working with me at the Dungeon Hobby Shop in the Dungeon Mail Order. So Jeff and I were co-bosses over, like, 20 people, 22 people for a while. Oh, jeez. In the TSR era. My dad constantly would, kept on getting older people to somehow work with me because there was this feeling that he didn't want to have nepotism. So a, a lot of people would have trouble necessarily taking orders from a 20-year-old or a 21-year-old. <laughs> uh, yeah, understandable. Okay, well, that's, that, that's fair. Yeah. Well, well, one of the most funny things was getting Tom Wom to somehow teach me responsibility. You know, he... <laughs> <laughs> Has that worked yet? <laughs> <laughs> well, Tom, I would show up earlier than Tom on purpose because he was almost never on time to open up the store, etc. <laughs> <laughs> that was at eleven o'clock opening time. <laughs> it doesn't matter what time you set. To this day, I have to tell Tom like an hour before, generally for some place, and try to have him meet me at my house or something like that so that when he does show up, it would be close to the, the time we're supposed to go somewhere and do something. <laughs> <laughs> well, since you've got Appendix N with you there, okay. um, who do you think isn't on Appendix N that should be? Who would you include into that list today, even if they're modern authors? Ooh. Of course, my dad, but that wouldn't make it. <laughs> <laughs> True, he wasn't writing fiction then. Yeah. And he, you know, almost everything else here is Jack Vance that I have in my favorite area. Uh, all the Thieves World, so I guess Robert Aspirin. Nice. Yeah, that's really great stuff. I'm just looking at these piles of books that I have as backup to read later. They're not well organized, they're just in stacks. I feel your pain. Dune! The first Dune book was a lot of fun, but then he stuck, it got worse and worse as time went on. <laughs> that, that's a, I think that's a, a fair uh, a criticism of the series, yeah. And that's foreshadowing for later, um, for Hero's Journey. That is true. <laughs> yeah, as is putting his dad on the list. True. Well, let's let's talk about that. Let's, let's talk about Gary and Gord the Rogue. And the the first Greyhawk books that were being put out. Ah, Saga of the Old City. Yeah. I get a feeling that... I feel that the the story itself is very librarian, I guess. Um, (laughs) In that it's it's kind of a Grey Mouser-ish character, although a little more robust. Almost like a combination of of Fofford and the Grey Mouser. Um... Do you, do you think that your dad's friendship with Liber and his and his enjoyment of Liber's work kind of influenced Gord, or did he draw from other things? He certainly read Fritz Liber's works many times, and my dad didn't always have a lot of time for reading. 
but he would go back into the Faffer and the Grey Miles in particular. But he also would read several other uh, Fritz's other works. There was even one that he had me read as a kid that was a lot of fun that had the church versus demons or something like that, only it really wasn't. It was, it was kind of a rebellion going on. And the church was like supporting, I believe, a totalitarian regime. <laughs> you know, we're digging up some ancient memories because that's, you know, all this, all the reading that I was really doing with Dad was happening uh, between the ages of ten and like fourteen, and then I started buying my own books and branching off. Gotcha. I'm fifty-seven now, so that's quite some time. So quite a reading streak started by Robert E. Howard. It hasn't stopped yet. No. No, 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 I can never have too many books. We had a lot of fun with Sax Romer for a while with Fu Manchu, I remember. <laughs> oh, jeez. Those would probably be politically incorrect nowadays, but I still enjoy all that. I love the Yellow Peril and all that. I think a lot of Appendix N literature is, is certainly not politically correct by today's standards. A couple pieces are even problematic by today's standards, but you've got to look at them through the lens they were written in and the time they were written in, I think, to really be able to just enjoy them, grab hold, and, and, and take the journey. Edgar Rice Burroughs. My dad had a huge collection of like everything that Edgar Rice Burroughs did, and I, I read all those. And one of the, the best things he ever told me about Edgar Rice Burroughs would be to never read more than four books in a row. Yes, that's really good advice. <laughs> <laughs> and come back to exactly where you left off, but get somebody that wasn't so formula. It's the same thing with the Doc Savage stories. You can you can read a couple of them in a row, but after that, they're just the same thing over and over with a couple changes. You've got to take that break. And now with the Doc Savage, Farmer did do one book, and but my dad gave it to me. And, and what was almost funny is that we were discussing how at some point, to somehow be able to make your instant elephant, you might have to pull out your instant water that just takes a drip of water to make a pond. That The idea of the, the super scientific things where it really had no basis in any sort of reality or whatever else and could just be written in by the author. Okay, well, I, I put myself in this corner. How do I get out? Well, and people accepted that when they read the books, which is something you would not find in a regular novel outside of the genre. I love that embracing and the suspension of disbelief, basically. Most novels, you will get nitpicked if you are an author. You will get picked to death on all of the scientific nits and bits. Well, something that I noticed with a lot of the books that I enjoy now a bit, but then it's to keep a series going, suddenly new uber powers keep on getting created and worse villains or horrible things to be fought against. And the original concept of it's it's almost like the D&D game in itself to start with, where my dad was trying to say that a five-hit-point man-at-arms would be like a tough guy we'd see on the street today, a real soldier, and that a heroic-type dude is an Audie Murphy or something else. <laughs> a wild exception. And now it seems that if you can't get to some point be able to fly between planets, your game is too limiting. That's a that's yeah. a really fascinating point. Yeah, because so much of my experience with D&D, especially during the 80s, was I think it was that kid's fascination with, well, how powerful can my character get? You know, and, and then the Immortals came out and, and it was like this, oh, yeah, this is what we're going to play next, right? Because it was all about mimicking sort of that comic book feel um, at some point. And that was like the kid's approach to it. And then as I mature, or as I, I say, come back to gaming, 
you know, a lot of what I find appealing about that is that fragility, right, of life or, you know, the realism, in a sense, that's taking that five hit point guy and making him be the hero. Right. You can certainly add consequences. I should do that to my party. The next time they murder hobo someone, I should make them adopt the victim's children. <laughs> <sighs> Great. <laughs> But yeah, in the Dungeon Master's Guide, they talk about you know, zero-level characters, and that's that's the average person. When you look at the economy, a gold piece was something that someone might earn in a month or a year, and so adventurers are, are very separate from that, a very different field just by that standard. And so, yeah, there isn't a need to, as Ernie says, fly between planets to set yourself apart. Well, Although not sometimes when the next, that can the, be fun. Yeah, <laughs> not when the next city, if it was 60 miles away... My dad used to have things where he would set up just for the gullible where people could go in and try to buy, in quotes, from magic stores or a gypsy would come along and offer some rare special thing, but, you know, in a, in a quiet midnight rendezvous or whatever else, somehow make this deal. And there were always ripoffs and con jobs. <laughs> I love that idea. <laughs> I think he was far less generous than today's judges. The idea of getting a... a Someone who could throw a continual light spell, and then he'd put a magic mouth on a sword, and so it'd radiate, you know, magic or whatever, or just any sort of simple little spell possible, and then being able to play the people along, and then you need to be in a super dangerous situation, or you need to be up against this kind of monster, and then suddenly the special powers of this item will be there. And of course, the idea being that if someone pulls this out, thinking this is going to be the thing they really need to save the day, well, then they'll probably just get killed. And that's another successful sale for the, for the gun. <laughs> and nobody comes back to complain. Yeah, I, I, No refunds. No, none needed. Sure, but when I tried that as a player character, I died horribly. <laughs> well, yeah, you do have a lot more power on the other side of the screen. There is that. There I mean, is that, I... indeed. Jim Ward faked me out because uh, the great enigma of Greyhawk on the ninth level was a statue, and we were all trying to figure out why and what it had to do and whatever, and Jim Ward put some magic mouths on it, and it basically said, if you're looking for more power and things for the future, you have to sow the seed, find a local neutral magic user, and give him magic items, and watch and later on, greater magic items will come to you, kind of thing. <laughs> Jim Ward got, like, a plus one shield and an enemy detection wand and something else out of me. <laughs> he was the only neutral magic user in the game of that time period, I think. And somebody we knew, and I never... You know, all I got back was the idea of being able to tell the story about how I got hoodwinked by Jim Ward. <laughs> <laughs> and he was a much lower-level character, desperately trying to get more things because we had so much more game time and it started well before him. So uh, Jim was probably running around with like an 8th level guy and I was probably like a 12th or 13th level dude. So my cast-offs were, were goodies to him. Oh yeah, 12th, 13th level, that's a pretty buff character. I think in, in the campaign I've been running for the past three and a half years, we might have one character that's 11th. Um, the highest level character yeah. was the thief, and he died horribly recently. Uh, only because he failed his resurrection, his, his con save. Well, he was, yeah. That sucked. He, he, he was killed with a flame strike. Oh, okay. Not mine. Um. <laughs> and I blame Ernie for my party's love of uh, Cone of Cold. <laughs> Absolutely. So, when you were hoodwinked by... Jim Ward, was that when your dad was running the game? Yes, though so that would have probably been second Greyhawk, so it would have been my dad and Rob together. So 
most of the adventures I did at that time would have been with my dad, sometimes with Rob together. And then later on, I started doing some adventures with Rob alone at his house. And that's when things started, the campaign started falling apart a little bit because Rob was trying to introduce uh, Demon World things. He had to play test stuff too. Uh- <laughs> I was curious, though, is that around the time that your dad would be writing things like Saga of the Old City, how many novels did he actually put out? Well, his first stuff was in Dragon, I think it was Dunstan, who was kind of a bungling hero type. Um, George MacDonald Frazier did a much better job with his anti-hero than my dad did with Dunstan, with a guy that really was just greedy and, and whatever else. Uh, and that didn't work so well. And then one time I, I got to read some other thief character that he was working on, and it didn't seem all that special. So Gord was not the very first thing he wrote. It's just the thing that he finally wrote and thought it was good enough to share. <laughs> and, and, and okay. Put out. Um, I hate to tell you about the first time I tried to run a D&D game uh, with my own castle. It ended up one single adventure had most of the monsters charging the player characters out of the dungeon and then angry villagers. And so it was just nothing but a big dice roll off for about four hours. Oof. <laughs> and the dad said, that's nice. I'm glad that you had this fun. Now rethink this and go out and try again. <laughs> like any good dad would do. Brush yourself off. <laughs> get back out in the field. And he played. He didn't. He didn't stop playing. He, Rob, and Terry all were playing in it, and maybe even some other people that I don't remember at the time. Could have been even Michael Bernard. Now, thinking of Gord and thinking of games run at the house, was there ever any overlap between the Gord novels and the Gord version of Greyhawk and what was going on at the table? Was what we were reading the Greyhawk that you were playing in, or was it different? Well, it was the world exactly that I'd been playing in, but by the time Gord was really written, I wasn't really playing very much with Dad anymore. Well, that's true, because that was, that was the, the 80s at that point, like mid to late 80s into the 90s, wasn't it? Yeah, so that I was playing racquetball and chasing secretaries and out in California with Dad. And... <laughs> <laughs> Might have been some saving throws involved there. Only uh... disease checks, but... I do have to give him credit with the writing in this particular novel. I don't know if it's because it wasn't his first or what the case would be, but I usually need one of those maps in the front of the book to refer to when they're talking about the different regions and zones that they're traveling through. Yeah. This was delineated well enough within the text that I had a grasp of where we were without that little map. That's some high praise for me. But didn't, didn't you already have the Greyhawk maps and had seen them? Me personally, I think I viewed them, oh geez, 13 years ago. But, you know, whether or not we have them here at the house, I didn't unfold it to go along with the book while reading this. Everybody just didn't have those on their wall in their house? I can't. <laughs> <laughs> we did have a Lord of the Rings in his den. There was a Lord of the Rings world map um, in one corner. It wasn't prominently displayed, whatever else, but it was... It was there as well as a, a globe that you would, could light up by flipping a switch, which would show all uh, the contours and depths of the oceans and whatever else. Uh, oh, that's, that's cool. Really neat. That used to fascinate me as a young lad. And a huge Funkin' Wagnalls dictionary that was <laughs> about 30 pounds. Yeah, that makes sense. The vocabulary your father used was just as obscure sometimes as the authors that he loved to read, so the dictionary makes perfect sense. And it's large enough to be a home defense weapon. Yeah. There is that, too. <laughs> now, actually, since, since you bring up Lord of the Rings, and there's been a lot of kind of discussions back and forth one way or the other. 
maybe you can settle it. Some people say that Tolkien and his writing were the most influential uh, writings to push forth D&D. Others have leaned more towards the sword and sorcery tales of Howard or Burroughs. What's the dish? Who was the most important author to Appendix N and D&D? Well, I would have to say Howard, then Vance. Uh, Really? Hmm. I would not have guessed that with the strong sci-fi slant from Vance. Let's just say that the Planet of Adventures series was one of my dad's favorites also, and I I still love to reread those. The Chash, the Gnome, the Deer Deer, the Wonk. Gotcha. And there's, the, what's that, the Demon Prince series? There was a lot of Vance on our wall. Vance was prolific, that's for sure. As well as many historical books that I enjoyed reading that would, were real-life people, but written after World War II. And lots of them were, I guess it'd be the, our anti-heroes, because it'd be Michael Whitman, the tank ace, Saburo Sakai, the Japanese leading fighter pilot. Robert S. Johnson was the American pilot. But I mean, there's all these books with all this one-on-one action written as living energy play. And this is the kind of stuff that I was fed on. There was some wonderful book of some fellow in uh, the Northeast League of Indians. And he was an Indian fellow fighting. And he was Iroquois and Hurons and things like this. And, and how he was captured and stuck on a stake for like three days as the women were torturing him and things. And there was just all these sorts of things. This is just a library that I'm just pulling out as a kid, just reading and reading and reading. And there never was enough. I could go through a book easily and eat one, one a day or more. And it, it sounds like a lot of it really did focus on that individual level struggle as opposed to a global struggle. So, hey, the next time that someone says Tolkien was the most influential author on D&D, you can say Ernie says no. <laughs> it has been resolved I think he, he read Guadalcanal Diary more and <laughs> Now that would be an interesting point to counter with No, 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 no Guadalcanal Diary was far more influential I'm than saying that that was part of the library also <laughs> Most things that were enjoyable And that we got into And that I still enjoy It's the idea of reading from a single character's perspective It's a lot easier to immerse yourself in the story that way Yes totally with you the main characters as a replacement for where they the audience now right away when D was out in its early versions many of the other kids that were making and trying to dm games all started having bombadil this and that so there was a token influence all over the place but it was mostly in the customer base on the part of the player yeah yeah and but just to uh go on another Jim Goodfellow, who is just one of our local gamers and used to play a lot under in Rob Koontz's game, he created this game because he had just seen the movie, um, oh, uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And suddenly there was Oompa Oompas and all kinds of stuff. I'm just trying to say that there's all sorts <laughs> of things that have influenced people's games, and but that has not what dealt with um, my father's works. Uh, a Merit? Oh, I forgot. A Merit. Boy, with uh, Moonpool and Creep Shadow Creep and some of that old horror. There was a little bit of Lovecraft. I don't think I've ever read any Clark Ashton Smith. I don't think he had any on his shelves. Well, that's interesting because I've, I've always heard that Smith was one of those authors that was, you know, a big influence but was left off of Appendix N. It's kind of interesting that he never had any of those books on his shelves. At least that I ever found. So now we know why he wasn't on the list? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's the only one of the big three from Strange Tales who well, didn't make Appendix N. Now we know why. If he would have had it, possibly in the past, it might not have made it to the being, you know, moving from place to place. 
because uh, this is 330 Center Street, my youth, and uh, he'd gone through basically running around Chicago with my mom, desperately trying to work as a shipping clerk and other things before he then got the fireman's fun job and all the issues that involve a young marriage. So his, and she hated, my mom always hated everything to do with gaming. So That's a shame. So everything to do with that, to this day, she's still shaking her head when she sees how popular dad is because she was always in the background saying, this is your childish stuff when you should be doing something important like spending time with your family. (laughs) But he created this legacy that allows other families to spend time with their families and friends. You're preaching to the choir, but that still doesn't... This is still the woman who saw at least 30 to 50% of his time that she thought she deserved being spent somewhere else. Yeah, okay, that that that's fair. On, on a personal level, yeah, that, that could be a struggle. Meanwhile, I'm thinking, guess you should have picked up some dice. <laughs> yeah, there we go! <laughs> they were worried when I was a, a kid, because after all this reading and whatever else, and, and it, in those days, they would try to, you know, have to go off to my room or whatever else for a punishment, and I would just pick up uh, billy clubs or a soup ladle or a coat hanger, and I would sit there, and before you know it, I'm spinning this thing around, and they say, you know, oh, you can go out and play now. I don't want to play. I'm still in the middle of my story. I was <laughs> 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 in the middle of creating the world and doing all this kind of thing. So imagination, I imagine, you know, it's just like an acorn falling from the oak, and I just don't have the work habits that my father had. But I have absolutely no trouble just sitting in the middle of anywhere, just creating something right off the cuff and enjoying and, and filling it. It's just the idea of sharing it with anybody else because that's work. <laughs> <laughs> from your mouth, yeah. <laughs> yeah yes, uh, yes, it is. So, Ernie, I, I know you you said that one of the influences was kind of this anti-hero concept or you know novels that had this you know these maybe anti-heroes in them it's it, gore kind of strikes me as a lot of that as well i mean obviously he's a, a rogue or a thief character i mean was, was that kind of the character that gary enjoyed experimenting or, or evoking a little bit all of us started with our first characters pretty much as neutral and that's the idea after discussing alignments in the earliest stages is the idea of do you want to have self-control, be able to, you know, uh, collect things for yourself, or do you want to be under somebody else's religion, control, etc. And it's only due to, like, artifacts, for me, that my characters have ever changed alignments away from neutrality. My dad's always played neutrality, which is more of a, a me, me, me kind of world. And you can include your cronies and your friends, in that world, but it's certainly not going off and joining UNICEF or anything like that. <laughs> not going to fight in somebody else's war when you're neutral. That makes sense. Yeah, and you get to nobody's tithing any of your stuff. And some of the earliest stuff you enjoyed doing, they had um, on some of the levels, there was a giant that would allow you to go down deeper into the dungeon, but when you'd come up, he would get to, like, dig through your stuff and keep anything he wanted. And until you were tough enough to be able to fight a giant, as, like, first-level guys going down, and you just had to sometimes lose some cool stuff, but the giant put it in his bag, and, of course, when he finally did get killed, there was a lot of cool stuff there. Yeah. <laughs> so, so wait, awesome. so, so in one of the early adventures, there was essentially a giant that would steal your lunch money? That's awesome. He, he guarded steps down, and another set of steps down was guarded by a bunch of elves. 
And the elves would take 10% of your treasure coming up and one magic <laughs> item of their choice. Okay? So until yeah. you got strong enough to beat up the bullies. Wow. Also a great way to separate a party from their cash. Well, and give him like a long-term goal also, which is this, oh, I, I really need to go back and beef up to go and defeat and re- re- get, regain my treasure. Oh, yeah, that's motivation. And as neutral guys, we had no problem killing dwarves and elves later. <laughs> <laughs> none of this none of, no no kumbaya crap or whatever else or uh you know no they, they stole your crap i'm gonna go get it back i'm the first guy to start capturing bunches of orcs and before you know it i had an orc army going not because i was a bad guy or whatever else but because they were used to getting bullied and picked on and i could use intimidation and then i would just pay really well before you know it and I've stuck them in plate mail, and I've, they had to carry around shields with my symbol on it, my logo. With Tensor, it was a scimitar with a bunch of moons and stars around the edges. And they all, everybody had round shields instead of kite shields, <laughs> at least in my group. <laughs> and I gave them maces for some reason. God knows why. But that was So when we'd run into other groups like orcs or whatever else, and I had some orcs with me, if I could get a, a, a point to get in some talking, whatever else, I'd have some of them pull up their face masks and whatever else, the, helmets and say okay you have a choice you can either now join us or you will die because i will not give you this offer again (laughs) (laughs) that definitely kind of carries through that neutrality anti-hero sort of vibe (laughs) (sighs) there's another aspect to that though which is i mean that that aspect of neutrality is very fascinating especially since it seems like it was kind of pervasive in you and your dad's gaming habits but this other aspect of neutrality being this balance or nature oriented like a druidic you know also comes across in in also in saga but in other places did he enjoy that kind of and neutrality as well or expand on it well but at the same time we started using the word tree hugger and stuff for for druids (laughs) 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 and the idea is that again anybody that focuses too hard on something becomes uh, one-dimensional. It becomes their religion, even if it's a neutral-based religion or a nature-based one. Sure. And that's all very nice and useful, but it gets in the way of being humans. <laughs> I know that part of the whole game at some point was just to go out and make a castle and set it up and then trying to fill it up. I had a bunch of um, medium thought writers. Thoats are, of course, from Edgar Rice Burroughs' Barsoom. Oh, yeah. And those guys cost me a hundred times the cost of a horse. So since I got medium thoats, it was, you know, 100 times. So I, I had a hundred, 140 of those as tensor. I guess at some point it's just kind of like having your imperial guard or whatever. <laughs> you end up creating your own economy at that point. And Gaddafi, didn't he have his 5,000 woman personal... <laughs> yes, yes, he did. Well... Good. <laughs> well, and talking about building up, because of course, you know, in AD&D, you're starting at first level and you're leveling up. In DCC, you're starting at zero and leveling up. And the Gord stories really start. I mean, he's a beggar. He's got like two little iron coins and a sharp piece of glass and maybe oh, a yeah. broken knife. <laughs> I love that. And the books kind of carry him to an adventure. I'm curious, since, you know, drawing on things like Conan, where Conan sort of springs wholly formed onto the pages, and Gord starts out as a little beggar boy, was there any particular reason that that your father decided to tell the story in that way? Did he just want to show that D&D-like progression? Yeah, because he literally did level up, like, adventure after adventure. Well, Robert E. Howard was selling short stories 
desperately trying to find something that somebody want to read. <laughs> no one wants wants to deal. But even Tom Brown's school days might have had trouble if you would have only had a chapter in the life of Tom Brown with the bullies and, you know, all that. Um, which also, I think, might have been on the shows. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was an attempt to just to create a fuller, more immersive picture because he wasn't doing short stories. Oh, uh, and... Also, he tried to create the idea that there was all sorts of things going on in the background because our fellow, just like a D&D &D character, was exceptional with all sorts of minor abilities that kept on getting better, and he had the ability to progress easily in multiple areas. So not only thieving, but also fighting. And then later, you could probably even some minor magics or whatever. He probably could have become very much a bard. Oh, in, in the later novels? Yeah. Yeah, that's actually pretty accurate. I mean, he, he certainly, in the early books, he's certainly a fighter thief. And yeah, he does kind of branch out that way. Bard, the original prestige class. Remember, in the early, in the City of Hawks or whatever, in his first initial stuff. Oh, yeah. He got the crap kicked out of him. Constantly. And even keeping any food at all was horrible. The idea of trying to eat every bit of food he could somehow scrounge or steal or whatever else. rather than Just so that nobody could take it from him. Yeah. And, and he had his own giant standing waiting to take his tithe in that, that same situation also. Yeah. The, the, the other character or the, the ones that rob him you know, before he leaves. Well, if I remember right in the books, he ends up running into some of those guys later and, you know, sees them as like it's not even worth punishing or whatever else when uh, there's some sort of a, I think, thief and beggar wars going on or much later in the stories. Well, even in this one, he finally made a friend that was able to tip him off so that he could escape when somebody was finally catching wind of who he really was. But you're, you're very right about the whole place. Things are going on around Gord, whether or not he's taking place in them. It is very like Lankmarian that way. I, I really kind of dig the vibe on that one. Well, and you can certainly see how Liber and Fafra the Grey Mouser and Gord the Rogue inspired later books like uh, The Lies of Loch Lamora. Yes. And, Love and Scotland. the Gentleman Bastard series. Yes. They're, I mean, when you read them, you can certainly see that these are materials that someone else has drawn on. And, uh, that inspired uh, them that, greatly enough, yes. Yeah, it keeps that it keeps that continuity. There's definitely I mean, if Gord was a Sicilian mafioso <laughs> he, he'd be he'd fit right into Lizlock Lamar. I mean it's just sort of that change. Well, that that sounds fun. I don't know that. I haven't read those. So I recently discovered Jim Butcher and I've read I think everything that he's done and that was grand fun. Though even he after a certain period of time kept having to try to accelerate the opponents and <laughs> Everything keeps piling on, yeah. Well, then again, to be fair, I mean, doesn't Gord end up essentially becoming a demigod at the end of the series and blowing up the world? So... He was pissed off. My dad was trying to kill off Greyhawk and everything to do with it. Oh right, because because he no longer had control of Greyhawk, yeah. So he was like, if I can't take my own toys, I'm going to throw the firecrackers into them and blow everything up. I'm reminded because in the books, Gord becomes, I think, I think it's the Cat Lord, 
And I'm thinking it's either in the Monster Manual 2 or the Fiend Folio that the Cat Lord appears as a monster in one of the books. He's not really monstrous, but... He's not the Cat Lord. He's he's like a son of Rex Phallus or something like that is the Cat Lord. And Gord is just like an offspring. So is he then an offspring of that Monster Manual creation? Well, he is supposedly... I don't remember. Is that Monster Manual 2? I think it's Monster Manual 2. Yeah, so that would, would have come after the story, after my dad already had it written and that's why i would be in there okay so so there is so that that link is there i'd kind of wondered about that yes definitely the link is there but again dad's bouncing around from project to project well and with all the projects that he did in saga of the old city there's a game they play the game of ivory in the patricians club with like you know bow sword spear capped by the horse did he ever develop rules for that or is that just something that he just sort of put into the story unformed. I think he took it off of his play of shogi. He used to play shogi. Oh, okay. Japanese chess. Gotcha. That's really cool. He tried to get me to, and I probably didn't have the attention span. Where did he get introduced to that? Probably just through the library system and, and dig up things. And then as soon as he would find something cool, he would dig more into it. Again, if it had any potential value, well, when he made, um, he made a, a little bighorn game, and that's when he started reading all about George Armstrong Custer and got really interested. That's a game that almost no one remembers that Dad did. And then he did the Dunkirk game, which was one of the first games that had uh, air factors involved in it. Hmm. To somehow have an air force involved in a primarily divisional or whatever combat game system rather than just an air system alone. Chainmail, of course, was a great creation that I believe still really influenced Dave Arneson and he put a lot of that in to a dungeon and the other gentleman that was a Bromstein probably added an element of some role playing but my dad created the concept of level advancement and rewards I believe uh, experience points very cool. Something that I would include in Appendix N though I don't know if they were quite out yet but it happened in the 80s would be M.A.R. Barker's two books, The Man of Gold and Flame Song. Ooh. Those were, were grand fun. And M.A.R. Barker, I, I got to visit him with my dad, and then he came down to a couple of our little mini-cons. Now, that's the uh, source material for Empire of the Petal Throne, right? Empire of the Petal Throne already existed, but it wasn't a game. And then after he'd been introduced to D&D, he took the D&D mechanic or machine, whatever you want to call it, Siege Engine or whatever, <laughs> created the Empire of the Petal Throne, and that was the first game that had the hit-kill potential, where if you rolled a 20 and then followed up with a 19 or 20, a 20 was double damage, and then if you followed up with another 19 or 20, you killed whatever you were fighting, no matter how tough, as long as you could still effectively damage it. So that was the first critical hits. Yes. Yeah, it wasn't D&D. It was Empire of the Petal Throne that created that. Very nice. Yeah, and, and that still has uh, a very faithful and loyal following. We should eventually cover some of this. I remember with Professor Barker, and he was thanking my dad for giving him a way to take his decades of creative work and share it with other peoples, besides just as an oddity, to make it a living, active environment, instead of just basically stories in his own mind, like I used to do as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and that's that's true. The game mechanic allows you to share so much more than you could with storytelling, or through a novel, or through a movie. You can do so much more at a gaming table. And then he was able to share all of his incredible works, like, here, I have all these several languages, 
and I have this whole ecosystem with these non-humans and, and all, but we, you know, Empire of the Petal Throne and, and all that is in itself something that could be this, a whole series, say. <laughs> and it is oh, people definitely. that are still promoting and uh, pushing that material and the fine efforts of the of the professor. Someone recently just ran a DCC adventure based on Empire of the Petal Throne. Oh, that's right. Oh, what was that, Bob? He was just calling it Empire of the Petal Throne DCC. He ran it at uh, GameholeCon, I believe. Oh, wow. I've gotten a hoogie up in the hobby shop dungeon that's... Uh, and I don't know if it could stay that or if I have to change it whenever we do get around to that. And I also have a, some deer deer, which are from Jack Vance. You know, these are all things that influenced my dad. And my dad had not only uh, Isle of the Ape, but he also had um, a whole area that I used to go into with uh, Erex's cousin. And it was the deer deer hunting grounds full of sequins. The idea is that that's where the young go out to, to practice and learn how to, you know, grow and mature. And it's their sporting, chasing humans around, using nerve fire. Oh, again, Jack Vance is just fantastic. Can't say enough about his fine works. And he could just, oh, the use of the English language, whatever. I, I'm totally with you on that. Jack Vance's language use, it's brilliant. It flows well. It's evocative. What did we have, was... a five-page handout with vocabulary, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we talked a lot about that last uh, last recording. It, yeah, we we just covered Tales from the Dying Earth. Okay. But it makes me want to read all these other influences that he written, that he written because I hadn't really branched out beyond Tales from the Dying Earth with him. Ernie, of course, we would love to thank you for your insight and, and wisdom and sharing that with us. We do have a couple proverbial bills to pay. If we could get you to sit tight for just a second here. We do have some DCC RPG road crew and convention shoutouts. Mark... Do you, oh yeah, so uh, maybe have an announcement? Yes. By the time this recording comes out, it'll be on the Google Plus community for the Gong Farmers Almanac 2017. Woo! We're kicking off it. Yeah, we're we're kicking off another call for submissions and getting ready to publish with the goal of getting maybe even more volumes than we had last year ready for Gen Con. So you sir are insane. Uh <laughs> <laughs> It's all Harley inspiring us. And he's involved, you know, of course, with the coordination planning with John and myself. And so looked the Gong Farmer community on Google Plus for the details. But we hope that folks that like DCC or just like the Gong Farmer's Almanac zine that we've been publishing, take a look at maybe contributing this year or maybe helping out in some other way if they, they don't feel like they can actually do a whole article or we, we need editors, we need people to help with layouts. So all of that's going to be going on again. Wow, okay. a mammoth project indeed. If you're attending PAX East, Trezzy Arviso is running DCC in the Games on Demand area at uh, PAX East. So find him if you're looking for some funnel adventures. Daniel Atson is going to be running his very first road crew game in a week on March 10th at Gathering Games in Tampa, Florida. Let's see, the Appendix N Book Club of New York is meeting on March 19th to discuss the horror stories of Robert E. Howard. Head on over to the Commons Cafe in Brooklyn, New York if you're around. The gathering begins at noon. M. Nixick is running DCC Funnels from 2 to 6 p.m. every Saturday at Tacoma Games in Tacoma, Washington. I think we mentioned last time, Diogo Nogueira has announced that the Portuguese translation of DCC is in crowdfunding. The website is www.catarse.me. 
slash DCCRPG, and the project has surpassed its funding goal already. There's quite the list of potential module translations as stretch goals, though. Friend of the show, Troy Tucker, continues to run DCCRPG at the Magician's Forge in Northport, Florida. Check with the store or find Troy Tucker on G+, or Facebook for more information. And of course, coming up this month is GaryCon. No small number of DCC judges will be running games for you. Brendan LaSalle, Harley Stroh, Julian Burnick, David Beatty, Michael Bolum, Joe Bittman, Jim Wamper, Haley Scatch, Corey Gassman, the infamous DM Kojo, Reed Sanfilippo, John Hook, Jared Crater, Daniel Bishop, Jeff Goad, Dan Dom, James Wells, Jen, of course there's Doug Con potential, and our guest Ernie, of course, is going to be at, at Gary Con because, well... <laughs> It's what he does. <laughs> and Casey, don't forget her. And Casey will be there. Yes, she who must. Her be Highness. Yes. Will will also be at at Gary Con. I have, I have to say, Ernie, that two years ago I had one of the best experiences of my lifetime getting to go to GaryCon with my gaming buddy from middle school and high school. And we purposely sought out one of your games because it was just so important for us to get to go and, and play. So really had a, a fun time going a couple years ago. So thanks. You're welcome. Yeah, I think it's a rite of passage. You, you kind of have to do it. <laughs> And also join us next time as in our continuing celebration of the life of Gary Gygax, we'll be discussing Ernie's own appendix and selection, which is Hyro's Journey. And if you'd like to see your creation in the DCC community's only free monthly e-zine, we would love to see what sort of things you have created based on your appendix and readings. You know, it doesn't even have to deal with the show topic at hand. If you're running road crew games or preparing for free RPG days, go ahead, submit your events and your creations to us at the hub at Sanctum Media, or you can find us on the regular social media sites. And keep an eye out for our future topics you can read along, and again, we'll include your material in the show companion. We do hope we've inspired you. Thanks for listening. Good night. Thank you. Hasta la vista. You have been listening to the Sanctum Secorum Podcast. Join us again in three weeks' time for the second part of our GaryCon Appendix N special with guest Ernie Gygax. The Sanctum Socorum Podcast has been a production of Sanctum Media. Copyright 2017.